pray that we'd understand more, and I pray that you'd use uh, this vessel to help each of us understand more. In Jesus' name, amen. In confusion, what we need most is clarity. I think we need that in our world today. I imagine you need that in your world personally. I can't know what that means specifically in your life, but I think we can all agree that our world and our lives are becoming increasingly complex. In all of our technological and intellectual development, our lives, though improved, which I believe they are, are filled with even greater clutter, information, updates, statuses. Thank you very much. I'm glad you enjoyed that sticky bun for breakfast. Not sure why I needed to know that information. You know what I'm talking about? More information than we need and likely want. Our lives are even cluttered by people who keep offering us their version of clarity and only find ourselves all the more confused. So therefore, this propensity towards confusion just escalates. Our passage out of Scripture today comes out of a lot of clutter out of a lot of confusion, even conflict. God used a man named Paul, who he called the Apostle Paul, in fantastic ways to spread his message in the known world, to grow the church of Jesus Christ, to write almost half the New Testament. I was drawn to this passage for this Easter, this Resurrection Sunday, because this guy's worth listening to, because what he wrote is really the inspired Word of God, and because it brings clarity from an eternal perspective. Just like this day does. The day we celebrate Jesus' resurrection from the dead. The, the significance of this day, though it takes place in space and time and took place historically in a specific moment, its significance spans eternity, past and future. For example, consider all that was happening around the betrayal, the arrest, the crucifixion, the death, the burial of Jesus Christ. Imagine what the disciples were sensing in terms of confusion and clutter and, and wonder. If you were one of those, and I walked up to you as some kind of reporter and said, what would you tell me about all that's happening? What would your response be? Maybe something like, it's all just such a mess. I don't even know where to begin to explain. There was such bewilderment in the lives of the disciples at the time. Think about it. Jesus was so powerful. All the miracles that He had accomplished, all the life-changing events, this authoritative teaching like they'd never heard before. It seemed like He could do anything. And they were right on the verge of this new kingdom He kept talking about. And it was just going to start soon. They could just sense it. And then... And he's arrested. And he's tried and he's beaten and he's crucified. He dies and he's buried. Seems like the end of the story. And then comes this day. One fact, one reality that all of a sudden brought clarity. It made sense of all that had happened and why. So let's see how this Apostle Paul explains the clarity out of what we celebrate on this day. I read from a letter that he wrote to the Corinthians, the second one, beginning in verse 
14 of chapter 5, it says, for, the, for Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who sh- live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us to implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And as co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain, for He says, God, in the time of my favor, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Now, let me see if I can help you with clarity coming out of those words. The whole explanation for clarity begins with love. For Christ's love compels us. Before there's any reasoning or explaining, before we rationally wrestle with the facts of all that's happened, there's something more powerful that affects everything. The love of God. Christ's love first. As we like to say around here, the first thing God would say to you if He walked up to you and engaged you in a personal conversation would be... There's a few people that have heard this before. The first thing He would say, truly, is I love you. He might call you by name which is really cool too. And then he wouldn't say, oh, by the way, there's this list of things and you were annoying me yesterday. Guarantee, first thing, the love of Christ compels us. The Bible verse that many children and some of us learned at a young age says, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. Just go back to the beginning of the Bible. The first thing He did was create. We have an amazing world that we can enjoy right now and it's under the curse of sin. Think of it before. The first thing He did was give us this amazing creation to live in and enjoy. God loves first. Before the denigration, there was creation. There was the power of love. Before the, pa- the presence of sin. And according to our passage today, this love 
compels us. Now, that's a word that is just rich, rich with meaning. It means to, to constrain, to hold fast, to be gripped by. Now, it can, a number of things can grip you. One of the ways that it shows up is in sickness. So people can be stricken with sickness. So uh, that happened with a lot of the people that Jesus healed. It says that the people were stricken with sickness, and so he had compassion and he'd heal them. Peter's mother-in-law was stricken with an illness, and he healed her. I was recently stricken. I was afflicted in this way. So as I said, I took this trip. I flew to Honduras. And then I was to go to Brazil, and then I, I mean to Belize, which is just near it, just, you know, if you know Central America, Honduras, just across a big bay, is the little country of Belize. And then from there I was to fly to Brazil. Well, somebody came up with this really neat idea that seemed like a good one at the time, that I could take a boat from Honduras to Belize. I would save the church a lot of money. And so this was a really neat idea, and I was going to do my three-hour tour. And we were joking about that before I ever left, and I was going to do the Gilligan thing or whatever. Well, in the upper right-hand, left-hand corner, you can see the boat. It's not a big boat. It's a little smaller than I anticipated. I got mixed reports on this thing because I actually met somebody in Honduras who said, oh yeah, we've taken that. We sat in the back and the air was there. You just, it was nice, enjoyed it and everything else. Well, I was in a line of people to get on this boat. I kept looking at a maximum capacity 51 people. Lousy with numbers, we were over 51 people. I was in the line so far back, I didn't get the guy to sit in the back in the nice air and get that, you know. I ended up way up in the front of the boat. Now, you see the top right-hand picture. I took this picture. There's only one person to my left closer to the point of the boat. That meant when it did this, I got to do all of it. And to my right, it's a little dark, but I took that picture. You can see that lady there. There's actually a hand between me and her. That's another person. And if you look at the picture on the bottom left, those two people who are sitting in the middle decided that wasn't a good place to sit, so they sat between me and the person next to me. We sat like this. I sweat. It was so hot. When I was done, there were the sweat stripes like this because I just dripped. That nice last picture on the bottom right, that nice little opening, I, said, I moved up there, I said, oh, I can get air, this will be good. They closed that. <laughs> right away. And then you can see little windows. So we started out, and uh, it was nice and calm until we hit the real sea. Boom! Bang! Bang! Boom! I mean... So those windows got closed because there was water coming in. Oh, my word. Three very long hours of being gripped by an illness. Forty-five minutes of all the psychological gymnastics I could render until I realized the affliction of that illness. I couldn't look around. Other people were, you know, and my wife right now is just begging me not to say anymore. I just leave the rest to your imagination. It was miserable. And you could see the pile of stuff that was in front of me. 
All but eight of us on this boat were migrant workers going from the poorest country in Central America to the next poorest country in Central America. And one of those black paper bags was a colored television. They had everything. And it was right up to your feet. There was no getting up and going to the bathroom or can I go over to the edge of the boat. It was miserable. And I was afflicted. I was gripped by this. That's what the word means. I was beginning to pray, Lord, I'm getting what the Apostle Paul went through, shipwreck and all of that. It isn't just here in sickness. It shows up in fear. We've been studying the Gospel of Mark. There was a demoniac. He had so many demons in him, they called themselves the legion. He was infamous for not being able to be controlled. Jesus comes. He frees him from it. The man is sitting there in his right mind. The people from the town are so gripped by fear for what Jesus has done. They beg him to leave. It shows up at another time when Jesus is with a throng of people and a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years says, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. She touches him. He senses the power that goes out from him and he says, who touched me? Now the the question is ridiculous to Peter. There's this mob, literally, it's what, there's where it shows up again. He was pressed by these people. They're going in a crowd like this. And he goes, who touched me? You've got to be kidding me. One more time, because I want you to get this. Jesus uses the word. When he says, I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. He's talking about what he just suffered that we've celebrated this weekend. This is strong. This is a force. The love of God, Christ's love, is a force. It constrains. It grips. In the verse, it compels us. It's not just a fact as much as it is a force. Now, there's a fact here. The fact is that we're convinced that one dies for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again. That's the fact. That's what actually happened. But it isn't the fact itself that's compelling, that grips us, though the fact can be substantiated. And we've dealt with that on other Easter Sundays, where I've talked to you about the historical credibility and, ver- and uh, veracity the reliability of the historical record that shows that Jesus truly did rise from the dead. There's lots of information on it. I'd be happy to share it with you. But the fact of the matter is, and if you're interested, I will, but the fact of the matter is I've never seen a person's life change because they understood a fact. They needed to know the fact was true. But I've never seen a life change because I won an argument but I've seen lives transformed by the love of God that gripped them, that got a hold of them. Gaining clarity isn't just about being convinced of a fact. Gaining clarity is mostly about being gripped by what the fact actually reveals. That God would love me that much. So here's the first implication of this truth I'm trying to get you to understand. Don't jump to the fact. Consider the force 
behind it. And I'm not talking Star Wars here. This is personal. This is individual. This is specific. This is Jesus Christ. This is His love. And His love changes everything. And that love is a force that compels. It grips our hearts when we get it. The fact is just how He did it. Now, this can be true. This is Christ's love because He's the Messiah. He's the promised one. He's our substitute. He's the only one that could do this. He could die for us and rise again and offer us forgiveness because He's God. That has to be a fact, but it is. And that fact isn't going to change anybody. But the love behind that fact overtakes people. When you get it, when you're gripped by it, it becomes personal because that kind of love has a name and it is personal. His name is Jesus Christ. Now, we have to ask ourselves, so what? What do you do when you get it, when you're gripped by this? And that's the follow-through. And its only logical response is what I read in the passage. Those who live now no longer live for themselves but for Him who died for them and rose on their behalf. When that really happens, when people really decide not to live for themselves but for Him, (laughs) crazy things happen. People do what no normal person would do. When clarity comes from this eternal God and this eternal perspective to us mortal men, we find ourselves doing things that make perfect sense in the light of this God who compels us, but seem downright crazy from anyone else's perspective. Let me show you what I mean. Watch this video. Are you kidding me? Why should they care about Berlin? Are you kidding me? Berlin is certainly the most fascinating city in all of Germany, but other than that, it's also the biggest one. It's the capital, the one that creates the vibe, the cultural vibe for all of Germany. I'm Alex Deutscher. I'm planting a church in Berlin, Friedrichshain, called Kirche, and this is the neighborhood I've lived in for three and a half years. We're here in former East Berlin, and you have a lot of West people come in, so in this neighborhood, you actually experience that firsthand, East and West coming together and having to figure out what that's going to look like. There's different cultures clashing, different religions clashing. It's like, this is the place where things are happening. What was different um, is, of course, I've never been part of a church planting project um, where you start from square one. Our church here in Berlin covers about 50 people and they're all in the age of 20 to 40. Alex was the first one, um, well, the first person that told me that a church um, in which you don't feel comfortable bringing people uh, is not a church that is um, trying to, you know, to grow or to um, yeah, bring the gospel to, to, to people. Alex told about the church planting he was going to do. I've been thinking about church planting for some time. Great Church is more about a movement than an institution. It's more about a network of people that captures your whole life in a certain way. To see a church that's part of the city, this whole city changed the way I, I think, and this church is just part of it. 
the mainline churches are basically closing down most of their locations just because there's no people coming anymore. And there's a couple of other churches um, in this neighborhood, but they're all very small. Ever since the wall came down, the neighborhood has changed. I think the stats are about 80% of the people have like moved in and others have moved out. So it's like a huge change in this neighborhood and lots of new people come in. We have 120,000 people living in this neighborhood. And I don't think for the most part there's a church that people could go to even if they wanted to. Most of our friends are actually grown up in an atheistic environment, don't have anything to do with church or have very bad experiences with church. And so our whole focus is to create and establish a church where people that have no connection to, to faith could come and explore it on their own terms. His vision was to build up a church for our friends, for people who are not in touch with any other churches or don't have any relationships to God. Also to have a church for the neighborhood where we are, where we are living, like the social part and also the cultural part, just to be involved in really in the city, in the neighborhood. I've met people who just, you know, I've become friends with and they get curious about, okay, well, now you're a Christian. I've actually never really met one and it's interesting. Tell me more about it. A couple of them actually started coming to the church and by now are talking about God as like a factor in their life where they don't quite know yet exactly how it all plays out, but like it's become important to them and they show up every Sunday and just keep exploring it. And I'm just very excited because that's what we hope to do. One of the things that I'm really personally excited about is that people have just started to bring their friends, even people that are coming to our church and don't necessarily believe it themselves. They've told their friends that there's a church, you know, where you can just come and you can figure it out and just listen to it. And it's great. It's a safe place. It's cool. That's something that I'm really excited about because that made us our vision. That's what we want to do here. So 50 people between 20 and 40 years old in East Berlin. Now that's former communist East Berlin planning a church in a place where these clashing cultures exist, exist tremendous religious indifference, ignorance, and a, so, a societal, really, a societal dismissing of God in any kind of meaningful way. That's crazy. Who's going to try and do that? But then, a place is offered where people can explore this compelling reality, not just that God loves, but that God loves them and explore that on their own terms a safe place that tells the truth about who God really is crazy right crazy cool by the way that very man is going to be here in two weeks speaking right on this platform as a part of what I was telling you about dedicating these weeks to what's happening around the world by God's compelling love now, these little things don't just happen in other countries. This is meant for us right here as well. After all, we're here to find some clarity. So back to our passage, what, what crazy things might we do if we were compelled by this amazing love? Now, two out of the three parts of this are God's part. He loves us, and He does that first, and that's the force. We only know what love is because God loved us. That's the way one of his other disciples put it. Then he fulfills the promise. He carries out the plan. He finishes the work. He identifies with us. becomes a man. He lives. He dies. He's resurrected. He's glorified. And he returns to his Father in heaven. That's the fact. 
Now comes our part. How do we follow that? He wants us to, not because He needs us to, but because He wants us to be included in what He's been doing. So verse 18 says, God gave us a ministry of reconciliation. So let's explore that a little bit without losing sight of the fact that God has done most of it. These are not equal parts. He accomplished the work. We just receive it, and then we tell other people about it. So verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone's in Christ... They're a new creation. The the new creation has come. The old is gone. And the new is here. This is the force. This is the love of God at work. He takes you and He makes you new. Verse 18 says, All this is from God. He reconciled us to Himself through Christ. Now, here's where we see the power of an exclusive love. Don't miss this. No one else did this. No other God has ever accomplished this. This is not being prejudiced against anyone else. This is just unique. I'm the only one in this room that went on that boat. That doesn't make me better. It certainly doesn't make me any smarter, does it? But it makes me unique. Don't misunderstand what Jesus has done as some kind of prejudice against other gods and other religions. It's just perfectly unique. Only He did this. You'll not find another person who has done what God has done in Christ Jesus. And that does make him smart, by the way. We can't say all religions lead to heaven if one of these gods, distinct from all the others, does what no one else can. And that gives him the right to expect and ask what no one else can. That's not narrow. That's just exclusive. And it's his prerogative because he alone has proven himself to be God by conquering death and rising from it. Therefore, he deserves more than anyone else. And it's because, or because it's so singular and so personal, is why I think he wants us to share that in such a personal way. That's why he says he's given us this ministry of reconciliation. 19. God through Christ, very personal, is reconciling people, that's very, very broad, because we've all sinned against God, That's our fault. And it's about a single God reconciling through a single person, Jesus Christ, all people who have sinned, and then having us share that in the personal way that He means us to, just like He did in saving us. That's why He calls us Christ's ambassadors. As if I were to say, He did this for me. I'm now His. Would would you be interested in being loved by God like I have been? You see, that's what he goes on to say. It's as if God is speaking through us. He makes this appeal. And these two more words, appeal and implore, are, are significant too. It means to call alongside. This isn't a hammer hitting on the head kind of thing. It's a walking alongside somebody. That's what the word appeal means. And saying, I just got to tell you, this is what's happened to me. And it changed me. And then he says, we implore you. That's the word to pray. It's the very same word that's used of Jesus when he prays for you. He simply says, I love you. I want to change you. 
It happens to somebody. They get gripped by it. And then they say to somebody else, they'll never believe what happened. It's crazy. God doesn't just love. God loved me and he changed me. And that can happen to you too. That's what love does. It doesn't force. It doesn't make a person do anything. It it invites and it compels. Why? Because if God loves, what does he want most? He just wants to be loved in return. So we find the summary in the last verses that I read, beginning in verse 21. Here's the fact. God made him who had no sin, Jesus Christ, to become sin for us, so that in him, Jesus Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. That's the fact. It's true, and it can be verified. But the force behind it is the next verse. As God's co-workers, we urge you, urge, again, appeal, Not to receive God's grace in vain. For God says, He says, In the time of my favor I heard you. And in the day of salvation I helped you. No fact will change your life, but the love of God will transform it. Because the fact is true. Then the follow-through is our last verse. Now is the time of salvation. Now is the day of salvation. So here's the clarity I wanted to offer you today. For those of us who came and we know what it is to be gripped by the love of this God, almost helpless to it, we say, thank you, all I can do is love you back. For those of us who know that, remember once again what he did. Don't let your love grow stale. Don't don't forget what it was like be gripped by the love of God and know beyond the shadow of a doubt that He loved you. Don't let it ever grow old. And then, renew your personal part. We should no longer live for ourselves, but for Him who died for us and was raised again. Not for ourselves, but for the one who loved us. So, what crazy things would He have you do for Him? And I want you to take these next three weeks and just remain open to that. Would you allow God to use the next three weeks to give you some clarity and some perspective on what He might want you to be a part of that goes way beyond these walls, that touches our community and that touches this world? Would you be inspired and compelled by other people who have said, yes, and gone and done some things that others would call crazy. And I've gone and visited them, and they are thrilled, fulfilled, happy to be where they are. Because they don't live for themselves anymore. They live for someone else. What part of that do you need to be engaged with? And there's all kinds of ways to engage in that. So let these weeks speak to you, and you say, all right, What wacky thing do you want me to do that will make perfect sense to me in the light of your love that grips me? For those of us who are still searching and you're not sure about all this historical reliability that I say that the resurrection has and 
that this Jesus was truly in time and space sent to die for your sin. I can help you with some of the facts if you want to hear those because they can be helpful because I don't want your faith to be without a reasonable foundation. But don't start with the fact. Start with love. Because God does. Because if you just open up the Bible, you'll find in a perfect world, God blessed man with more than he could ever imagine. The first thing he says is, I love you. Let that sink deep into your soul. Because God didn't have to love you. You know yourself. Why would he love you? Except that he chose to. And he loved you so much that when you turned your back, he sent his son to become just like you. And here's the fact. Become like you and live this life and die that death and rise from the dead to conquer it and offer you new life. That's how he could do it. Why he did it is what you want to dwell on. And when you're overwhelmed by that love, all he wants you to do is say, I surrender to your love Help me love you back. I get it. I get it. I needed it. I get it. I'm a sinner. I get it. That I didn't deserve it. Help me love you back. And He will transform your life. All the old will be gone. And He will make you new. Understand the fact. But start with the love. And then, then let Him have you. Become a follower, not of a religion, of a person whose love is gripping and whose love compels us to love him in return. Pray with me. Thank you, Lord, that you sent us so much more than information. Thank you that you made your message so much more than some kind of trivial status. Instead, you revealed yourself in such amazing and creative ways and ultimately in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ, who tells us by everything that he did that you love us with an incomprehensible love but not one that cannot be felt and by which our lives can be changed. So I pray for everyone in this room that we would be gripped, stricken by the love of God and compelled to do whatever you ask us to do to the glory of your name. Amen.